0: So good morning, good morning on our last day of our emptiness retreat. And uh, I hope that you've appreciated that the teachings of emptiness have been uh, something that's been much valued down through the history of all forms of Buddhism, including the Theravadan tradition, including the times of the Buddha. Emptiness points to some profound aspect of practice that uh, involves insight, involves the unfolding and deepening of practice, and and involves the experiences of freedom and the free mind that uh, comes with practice. Empty, emptying, and emptiness that we dwell in. If you go back and look at the teachings of the Buddha, he spent a lot less time talking about emptiness, a lot less than he did telling stories. He told a lot of stories. He was a story, story, you know, from our modern kind of point of view, he was a storyteller, including as a Dharma teacher and philosopher and meditation instructor and advisor to people, and. Um, he, a lot of his teachings were done in similes, in metaphors, analogies, fables. There were stories that he told of his own life, stories he told of other people's lives. Uh, he told this, uh, when he talked about his own awakening, he often did it in the form of st- a story. And uh, he would tell a story of his search and his failures in his search, failures to find a solution with his other teachers and other approaches. And then the story of, um, you know, uh, how he found his way and began with a, a, he told a story that the key for him to find his, the path to freedom was a memory of when he was a, seemingly a child, uh, sitting under a rose apple tree on a nice spring day uh, while his uh, father or the others were out doing the ceremonial first planting of the spring. He sat under a tree and, and experienced a sense of deep well-being that um, uh, later as an adult, he thought that sense of well-being that came with just sitting there, not, you know, not being anybody, not trying to accomplish anything, um, that kind of deep rest and ease, that maybe that's key to freedom. And, um, and he had some confidence in that kind of well-being because as was the custom of that time, there was a deep distrust for um, pleasure and well-being that came from sensual pleasure. And so, but he identified this well-being just sitting there as a child under a tree in a nice day as being, uh, not coming from sensual pleasure, coming from some maybe well-springs inside. And so that's what he tapped into. And that's remembering that story of his own became the key for him. And then he tells a story of, you know, what happened leading up to his enlightenment. And he tells a story, what's very important, he tells a story of, um, you know, it's not really a story exactly, it's the conventional way, but then kind of a narrative of um, his many lifetimes going back in time. And that was very important to see that. And then he saw something about how not, not in the historical, in you know, the historical, in the distant past, the arising and passing of his lives, but also the rising and passing of people's lives in this time, this life, this this time. And he saw how people uh, died and would be born based on their karma, based on their intention, their life they lived on. And it shaped you know, to this, this kind of constant engagement. Some people in the modern world will see this, the story of multiple rebirths as a metaphor for how the individual personality, or individual identity, identification we have, Gets reborn day by day, minute by minute. We we tell our we we tell stories to ourselves over and over again. And um, it's been pointed out by a number of scholars of religion that mostly religions are made up of stories, and uh, most people's uh, identification, involvement with religion, the entry into religion of all kinds, has a lot to do with the stories that religion tells, and um, that's what speaks to the heart, the kind of shows them something, teaches something. And it's not surprising that the stories are so important because human beings are fantastic storytellers. Now you, you've been telling stories to yourself for a long time. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes we wish you understood they were stories that you made up. Stories about the fish that gets bigger with every telling, you know, so all kinds of stories. And these kind of, you know, some stories of our lives are malleable and shiftable. And, You know, is not necessarily so accurate. Our memories from the past—we think we remember well, but things are often not. uh, You know, it turns out that people who study memory uh, say memories are not that accurate. They're selective, and they get retold in new ways. And I tell stories about my own life sometimes, um, and I don't really remember. What I remember is I remember remembering remembering. (laughs) So you know, is that really? accurate anymore? You know, how does it shift? It game a telephone in my own mind. So we tell stories. And a lot of these stories are stories that we suffer because of. Sometimes because we take the story, stories to be solid or meaningful, or this is the way it is, rather than seeing stories as being um, made up. And remember the word I like to translate sankaras as made up. Kara comes from the word to make sun with, so, you know, we make it up. So stories are clearly sankaras, we make them up. And we project our stories, we see the world, we we have the world participating in our stories. Sometimes other people's stories kind of match our stories. But kind of, but you know, sometimes they don't, sometimes they do, and sometimes we we wake up and realize, wait a minute, I've been living in a different story than my spouse. (laughs) I didn't realize that how different we were. So stories are important and stories are empty, but stories are are something that we create and we co-create and to see them as creations allows us then to, uh, hopefully, to then begin loosening the grip we have on our stories, but also to start becoming creative uh, so that our storytelling, the way we assign meaning or understand our world can become more creative and more meaningful, more helpful for ourselves and for others. And um, so to clarify our stories and story making is part of the function of emptiness to see through it. um, See them all as empty. So that's a prelude to me reading you some stories. (laughs) So, you know, Buddhism is often considered a journey, a path that you take and so you can talk about stages in the path. That's a story people make. And so I'd like to offer you three stages in the path, beginning, middle, and end. This the first story. At the beginning of every year, the abbess would meet the new monks and nuns who had joined the monastery the preceding year. Pack your bags, she would say, I'm taking you on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. Knowing of the pilgrimages to the places in India where the Buddha was born, enlightened, first taught and died, the new monastics couldn't believe their good fortune, especially because after their first few months in the monastery, some of the new residents were bored, some were restless and some were unsure why they were there. On the day of the departure, all the older monks and nuns in the monastery stood by the gate to send off the abbess and the new monastics. Leading the group, the abbess first took them to a hospital. There they visited the sick. Then the abbess took the group to an old hajum. The new monastics, many who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age. The abbess then took them to a hospice. In the hours there they spent time with people in all stages of dying. The last few hours were spent in silent vigil with someone who had just died. The abbess then led the group back to the monastery. There they visited a nun sick in the infirmary. The new monastics were struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated through the tired eyes of the patient. Then they went to visit the oldest resident of the monastery a 96 year old monk. The group was awed by the love and acceptance that shone forth from the toothless, frail, and stooped man. Next, the abbess took them to the hospice wing of the monastery. Here they were introduced to a nun who only days away from her death, radiated a palpable peace that lingered within, within them for hours after. Finally, the abbess took the monastics to the meditation hall. When they were all seated, she said, you have seen the holy sights. These are the sights that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, you will no longer be troubled when you encounter old age, sickness and death. So that's the beginning, to be motivated by suffering, be motivated, motivated by the human existence that we're in to understand that we tell ourselves stories, we live by stories uh, in the midst of something which is not a story so much. Sickness, old age and death, existential problems and challenges of our life. And can we get to the bottom of it? Can we relate to it? Can we find a way to live in this world with peace? So that when it's time, our time to die, uh, we have half a chance maybe to die with a sparkle in our eyes, with peace with some equanimity in it, rather than fighting, struggling, regretting um, this world, this life that we've lived. And so to be motivated, it's a beautiful thing to be motivated to enter into a world of practice, not to accept the life that we just happen to bumble into because, you know, we're supposed to accept things and just suffer better. And I'd like to say, you know, someone brought up earlier in the retreat, the idea of destruction that the Buddha talked about destruction of the corruption, the destruction of craving. And, um, you know, and some people protest because Buddhism is supposed to be such a tolerant religion. And um, and I I say that Buddhism has some, something that's very intolerant about. There's, there's a real big intolerance in Buddhism. Buddhism is intolerant to suffering because that's the whole point of Buddhism. It's not, you know, if you're supposed to just tolerate your suffering, then Buddhism is only about just suffering better. But uh, to get to the heart of suffering, to really be motivated and um, not to be oppressed by it, not to attack it, not to get aversive to it, but to really get to the bottom of it and find some peace, some resolution, some different way of living, not for our own sake only, but for everyone's sake. So, So that's the beginning, the quest the search, motivated. So then, the middle. The janitor was one of the more radiant monks in the monastery. His peace and joy inspired everyone who met him. Never seeming to want anything, He had a knack for being in the right place at the right time when others needed help. He was always thorough in doing his job and no one had ever seen him bothered by anything. One day he was asked if monastic life had ever been difficult. This is what he said. Before coming to the monastery, my life was very hard. I considered ending my life because my suffering was so great. For me, the monastery was the end of the road. I saw it as my last chance. When I first arrived, I had a long interview with the abbess. She asked me lots of questions. I told her things about my life that I had never revealed to anyone. At the end of the interview, she welcomed me to the monastery. As I took my leave, I asked what sort of spiritual practice I should undertake. The abbess looked up at me with such compassion and confidence that I thought she was preparing to tell me something very important. But all she said was, Always walk completely through the doors. For the rest of that day, I wondered if I heard correctly. (laughs) How could walking through doors be helpful advice to someone as despondent as me? Perhaps the old woman was becoming senile. (laughs) The next day, to my surprise, the monastery doors started talking to me. Every time I went through a door, I heard a faint whisper. At first I thought I was imagining it, so I didn't give it much attention. But when the whispering kept reoccurring, I strained to hear what was being said. Finally, I was able to make out the words. It seemed each door was whispering the same thing. It is all empty. I asked the other monks if they too heard the voices but none did. I asked them if they knew of the meaning of, it's all empty. They just smiled and shrugged their shoulders as if they didn't have a clue. Pretty quickly, I decided that the voices were a reminder of the life I had left behind. All my possessions, along with the endless pursuits I'd run after, the burning burning drive for recognition, the insatiable womanizing, All of that was indeed empty. The whispering doorways seemed to be reassuring me that I had made the right decision in coming to the monastery. They were reminding me that no longer was there anything outside the monastery walls for me to chase after. So at first the voices made me happy. Convinced the world I left behind was shallow, I threw myself wholeheartedly into the monastic routine. What a delight it was to have finally found a meaningful life. But as the doorways continued to whisper, it's all empty. I began to have doubts about monastic life as well. Was this life also hollow, meaningless? Added to my concern, the voices started to grow louder. Before long, I felt as much despair about monastic life as I had, about my previous life trying to find something that would give meaning and purpose to my life. I decided to devote devote more time to meditation and thereby develop my inner life. Certainly the pursuit of real spiritual attainments would be meaningful. The meditation practice seemed to lighten my despair. And when my meditations were deep, I was filled with with confidence. I began to feel quite happy, even happy-go-lucky. I'd found the key to happiness and was convinced that I was, I was surpassing all the other monks and nuns in holiness. But every time I left the meditation hall, the doors whispered again, it's all empty. After a while, this began to grate on me. I became increasingly angry because the voices seemed to suggest that my newfound identity as a deep spiritual person was empty. When the anger became too much to bear, I was forced to admit that I had been caught up in pride and that my vanity too was empty. Once the anger passed, I carried on with my meditation practice. After all, nothing else seemed to make sense. Then the voices started commenting on the meditation itself. I heard again, it is all empty. Did this mean that meditation itself was meaningless? My despair returned with a vengeance. I tried hiding in my room so I wouldn't have to go through any doors. (laughs) I took to climbing through windows whenever possible. (laughs) If I did have to pass through a door, I ran through trying to distance myself from the voices. By By now, the voices had grown very loud. As I ran down the halls, the phrase, it is all empty, echoed after me. After a while, every thought I had, every wish I hoped for, and every effort I made was assaulted by, it is all empty. Resonating throughout the monastery, I couldn't take it anymore. I ran toward the front gate of the monastery, intending to find a tall mountain cliff and throw myself off. It no longer made sense to keep on living a life, living if life was going to be so hard. But as I came to the front gate, the doors loomed large in front of me. I was too frightened to pass through them. I felt I couldn't survive one more voice telling me that it is all empty. I stood there frozen for a long time, but then I remembered the practice the old abbess had given me on my first day in the monastery always walk completely through the doors. The instruction seemed so useless the first time I heard it. Now it seemed monumental. I could not manage to get myself to pass through the front gate. Inside my head, a voice kept repeating, it's all empty, it's all empty. My mind couldn't find any object to rest on because when it did, I was reminded that it too was empty. My mind became increasingly contracted, turning in on itself. It kept pulling away from everything until all that was left was the frightened mind itself. Then one last time, a a voice boomed out. It is all empty. And with that, I let go of my mind. Since that day, the voices stopped and I've never again worried about the meaning of anything. Neither despair nor hope are relevant for me. Happily, emptiness permeates everything." So, if you see the thoroughgoing nature, thoroughgoing empty nature of everything, it can be frightening, but you have to be thorough. And you're thorough, you turn around and see that the very thing that's worried about things being empty, that which wants to hold on, that itself is empty. What then? No place to stand. What then? So then the last story. Actually, two more. A young monk asked the abbess, how can I recognize if someone is enlightened? The abbess replied, the first thing to consider is if they are helpful to other beings. So three stages of practice to be motivated to consider our condition, our situation, our suffering, our existential plight, and to enter into a path of practice. It's a beautiful practice, beautiful path. It's one that you can trust, you can take refuge in, it can take you a long way. You can find uh, profound sense of meaning, profound sense of value, profound sense of nobility, profound sense of freedom on this path. But like the monk, if you start building, holding a story around that and holding it tight, especially stories around me, myself and mine, then we solidify and the emptiness becomes frozen in a sense, fragile. But to keep seeing the emptiness of it all means not to cling to any of it, just let go, let go, let go. And to let go of it all, not to have any place to stand on, to hold on to. But then what? What what comes then? And here the story is, does the person help others? And it's very easy to then assume that the story implies you're obligated to help people. I don't think anyone's obligated in Buddhism to help anyone. But the freedom we're talking about in Buddhism is not just the freedom to hold our stories lightly and see through them and create them But more deeply than that is the impulses that we have to cling and hold on and react to stories, react to this world. The deep, almost biological impulses to to greed and hate, to be confused, to have fear, drive so much of what we do. And part of this movement of practice, the movement of mindfulness and concentration and emptiness is to help the mind, the heart, be reassured, settle and let go, be healed, open up so that it doesn't have to be impulses of greed or hate or fear. So that when we come back and make up stories, live in the world of stories, live in the world that we have, that we're not motivated by these forces within us because they've, we've let up, we're freed from them. And then what happens? What takes their place? The human heart is a mixed bag. There's skillful and unskillful qualities within us. But it seems remarkable that it's possible to free ourselves from the unskillful. And that makes a lot more space in the heart. The heart becomes sensitive and open. And so that makes space for the skillful. And, you know, a guy last night said that some of these teachings on the karma, you have to kind of take a little bit of faith. There's no hard evidence for some of it. And there's, I don't know if there's any hard evidence that if you are able to let go of your clinging, let go of your fear, let go of your hate, let go of your resentment, let go of your hurt that you're holding on to, that what will come as a result are beautiful qualities. But that's basically what Buddhism teaches. And the word beautiful is a Buddhist word, soba. When the Buddhist psychology talks about the different aspects of the heart, they talk about the unskillful aspects, they use the word akusala, and then they talk about the beautiful aspects. So what's left is the beautiful aspects. And so then we, then those beautiful aspects will respond and react to the world in a way, the stories we make up, the stories we live in and participate in, will be supported and fueled or um, inspired or, or um, <clears throat> influenced or informed by these beautiful qualities, informed by generosity, informed by love, informed by wisdom, informed by compassion. And isn't it great to live in a world where those stories are made up of those? So the first thing to consider for an enlightened person is a person helpful to others. So the last story in this book is, um, is uh, maybe because of, uh, there's a couple of people from Zen Center here. And some of you know, Lou, Rich, uh, Lou Hartman, who died a couple of years ago. And this actually is a, um, a, uh, you know, a restating of an exchange that him and I had some years ago. An old monk, Lou. an old monk traveled from afar seeking advice from the abbess. I guess that's me. (laughs) Um, He explained that all his life, he had used stories to tell himself and others who he was. He lived in in some stories for decades. When eventually a story proved hollow and meaningless, he would find another belief, another religion, another role. He told the abbess, Buddhism and being a monk has been my story for the last 30 years. But, but now I've let go of even that story. With no story, I don't know who I am. How can I live when I don't have a story? Gently, the abbess said to him, this is good. Now turn to the people around you and listen to their stories. So we've offered you a lot of stories this retreat, stories of impermanence and suffering and not self, story of aggregates, stories of dependent origination, stories of emptying, stories of karma, stories of awareness, boundless, open, free awareness, stories of compassion. You've been listening to us. Thank you for listening and being here. We hope that these stories are meaningful for you and encourage you along your path of practice. I think it's probably one of the most useful things maybe that some of us teachers can do is just offer encouragement and support so so you can keep going. Because it's a beautiful path to walk, the path of practice and all the different facets of it. And uh, I certainly hope that the teachings of emptiness will um, be meaningful and supportive for you. Uh, If nothing else, that uh, you hold uh, Buddhism more likely. Buddhism is empty too. And uh, I'd like to say that uh, there is no Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't exist. The Eightfold Path doesn't really exist anywhere. It's empty unless you make it. Buddhism is a story, practice, the Eightfold Path is a story for you to make. And the Eightfold Path is found when you walk it. It's it's found in your stepping on it. Outside of that, there is no Eightfold Path. We don't have it here at Spirit Rock. (laughs) Unless you follow some of us really closely. (laughs) So, um, Thank you for being here and participating.: and...
1: So I just <clears throat> wanted to say a few words about continuing practice deepening practice. We've offered a lot this retreat. As I've said a number of times, it's very full for an emptiness retreat. And hopefully in going home, you'll have time to digest some of what you've um, experienced here, practiced here, uh, inquired into here, Um, hopefully not leading to indigestion, but rather (laughs) nourishment, nutriment (laughs) for your practice. And you probably know all of the talks and Guided meditations were recorded, so you could even relive the retreat, in, in a way, if you wanted to. Um. Some people have asked, you know, about practices or specific things that one should do, and, you know, I don't think there is anything very specific, because each of us is so unique where we are on, a, on our path and unfolding and what might uh, be the best support for ongoing practice. But the few things that I wanted to mention, to really um, begin to understand these teachings, you have to put them into practice. You have to keep examining them. You have to keep sitting with them. And the busyness of our lives doesn't support that very much, as I'm sure you're all aware. So one of the best ways is long retreat practice. Just to actually steep in... uh, these teachings, the view of Dhamma over an extended period. So here at Spirit Rock, we offer a one-month or two-month retreat every spring, and the three of us teach that retreat regularly. Guy and I teach regularly at the fall um, three-month retreat at IMS, our sister center in Barry, Massachusetts. So spring or fall, there's an opportunity for extended practice. And there's no better way than just the personal exploration in silence to really integrate and understand these kind of teachings. But at the same time I have come to really value this kind of format where it's a little more engaged, there's a little more teaching involved and it's certainly experiential through the exercises that we did. So. Regularly Spirit Rock is going to offer this kind of retreat, encourage you to look out for them, senior students retreat that have this kind of format. But another two options that you could consider, one is a retreat we do pretty much every year called Living Dharma. And it has this kind of format, it's actually even a little more engaged in some ways, sometimes the meals aren't in silence so that people actually connect with each other and get to practice. Uh, mindful speech and and developing community and each year we take a different theme we might we've done the four foundations of mindfulness uh, the eightfold path we might do the three characteristics and look in depth at those teachings um, to explore them and as I said it's very experiential we'll have inquiry sessions similar to what you've done here so even though the topics look fairly um, basic, Four Noble Truths or Eightfold Path, as you know, there's a power to engaging with them in this kind of way that really can deepen your understanding. So recommend that. And then, of course, there's the Dedicated Practitioner's Program that I've mentioned a couple of times. This is this kind of retreat magnified. Um, it's It's a program that you apply for um, it has a prerequisite of 50 days of residential retreat time, vipassana or metta retreat time, and five years of practice. So it's meant for our dedicated practitioners, our senior students. And if when you get in, if you get in the program, it it's a two-year program with five retreats of a week long. As I said, very much like this, they're interactive, they're engaged. There's a lot of teaching, but the power of it is you're in that program for two years. And so over the time, with the same people coming together again and again, it really does form this very powerful dharma community with a lot of support. So as well as the five retreats, there are monthly homeworks, monthly groups that meet to discuss the homework and your practice, uh, we support you creating Dharma Buddies that could be one, two, three, four, or more people who again commit to meeting regularly. Some meet monthly or weekly. It can really vary. And uh, everyone gets a Dharma teacher for the duration of the program. that will give interviews on a regular basis six to 12 times a year, perhaps. So it really is a very rich program. We, The way we... Um, view it as it's a two-year lay intensive practice period. It's like being on a two-year retreat because there's always this reminder or this invitation to practice and to integrate the practice. It's not just a study program. It really is about how do I live these teachings? How do I make use of them in my life? And so the retreats cover all of the different aspects of the path, the eightfold Path, um, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. We do a retreat called Worldly Dhammas, where we talk about relationships and money and livelihood and sexuality and creativity. Um, we do deep dhammas, the ag- just like this retreat, the aggregates and dependent origination and the Abhidharma. And then our last retreat, well, uh, this is what we've done in the past, it could change, it's impermanent too, it is on Nibbana and how how we actually... Do the deep work to free the mind. So it's a very deep and profound practice period. And I have led that program. In the, uh, getting towards the end of DPP 4, so four rounds of it. I'm actually not going to be involved in the next one because I'm going on sabbatical next year, but two great teachers, Andrea Feller and Temple Smith, are going to be spearheading it and inviting a lot of other teachers to join. Are you... I'm going to the first retreat, you know, Jack and Philip Moffat, other teachers, will be invited. Um, So it'll be another rich program, I have no doubt. The uh, applications, I think, will be available online sometime in the summer of next year. And the program will begin in May of 2014, April-May of 2014. So you've plenty of time to consider it, really recommend it. And so how many people, there's, I know there's a number of people here um, who were, have been in DPP. Just put your hands up who's been in DPP, and if you're interested in it, you can look around and just maybe find someone and just find out what was that like for you. And, and as I said, it's, for the people that I talk to, it's really been very meaningful, um, and especially for creating sangha, friendships. One of the, our challenges is we practice in silence most of the time. We come on retreat, you blab a little bit over that first evening meal and then we're in silence and then we all disperse and you often don't get to know each other. It's, I, I, one of the things I've really been trying to support here at Spirit Rock is the building of community. So all these different ways, DPP and Living Dharma and the Sunday morning class that we were doing here for a while. All those kind of things I think are really important because it's hard to do this on our own. We need to look for ways to connect with other people who share our values and our practice. So whatever form that might take, whether it's one of these structured retreats or programs or doing it in your own local community. I often recommend to people that one of the best ways to keep your practice alive and active is to to find a Dharma buddy. Just it only needs to be one other person who you connect with, maybe in your local Sangha or you've met on retreat. And you just make a commitment to talk regularly, whether it's in person or on the phone, weekly or monthly. But there's something about knowing that there's that connection and you're going to speak. I find accountability really ups the ante. When we're left to our own devices, most of us tend to fudge a little, don't we? Float a little. You know, we're, we're serious, but it's hard to keep the... Um, motivation going, but knowing that you're going to speak to someone who's going to say, what are you reading? What do you think about this? Or how's your daily sitting going? And kind of, okay, I need to keep showing up. So recommend that as one of the best things you can do to um, keep the motivation behind your practice. So again, on my side, always really appreciate that So many people are interested in these teachings and these practices and come and and share in the retreat. It's always inspiring and nourishing to me to share in this. So I also thank you for your practice and hope that we meet again on the Dhamma Trail.
2: Just to give a sense of the rest of the morning, we're going to probably take about another 30 minutes. And right now we're just going to open up for questions. If anybody needs to take a short break, just go out during the question period and we'll still be here when you get back. (laughs) So we'll open it up now if if there are any questions remain. We've talked so much. Um, But if you have a question, yes, we'll we'll stop. Okay, well, let's put it on the mic so everybody can hear. Nikki, right in the first, second row. Uh,
3: two questions. What, what about the, um, the suttas uh, <clears throat> class that uh, is going to happen in six different times? And then also the heavenly angels.
2: I'll talk about the second. What was the first one? Uh, the, the
3: sutta class on um, Sunday afternoons.
2: The oh, yeah, sutta class. Yes. Um, starting in January, we're going to have one afternoon a month of sutta study. And it's going to be shared between a few different teachers. I'm going to uh, teach the first one in January. Then we'll have another uh, five series after that, so every month. So everyone is welcome to that. If the suttas interest you, I think we're going to take the readings mostly from the middle-length discourses, the Majima. So look on the Spirit Rock uh, calendar starting in January. Once a month there will be that study class down in the lower hall. And then there's a new program starting in 2013 called "The Heavenly Messengers." It's going to be run by primarily James Barrez and Franco Staseski. James is a Spirit Rock teacher for a long time. Frank O. founded the Zen Hospice Project and has 20 years experience working with people in aging and dying.
1: And Sharda.: Sharda
2: Sharda's is also a an integral part of that. So, um, it's going to be a multi-year program like Sally's dedicated practitioner program. There will be 5 retreats over two cal- over 3 calendar years. And it seems um, well designed at this point to a- to match the development of our sangha. <laughs> so we look around the room, there are a number of us who are approaching, you know, the aging process, illness is the next step, dying obviously. So it will be an opportunity to examine those issues in our own life and also to uh, form service projects that will move into the community and help people who are also dealing with those issues. I think it will be a tremendous teaching team and a lot of learning that's really geared to this stage of life. Thank you. Let's take a couple of questions over here. And you can address to any, if there's a particular person you want to address to, that's fine too.
4: I think this is mostly a question for you, Guy. It's about the um, big mind, big sky uh, meditation. Um, Am I correct in thinking that the object of our meditation in that is awareness itself? Yes. And I think you said that if a hindrance arises, if we get lost in a thought that's doubt or whatever, that we let it go and turn back to look at, Awareness
2: in that practice—that's the way you tend to deal with your hindrance. Yes, that's right.
4: So that is—that makes it a distinctly different practice from what I would say my usual vipassana practice of when the hindrance comes up, you look at it, you you know examine it, you blah blah blah. So um, is that
2: correct? So they're they're separate. Is that? Well, I would say in traditional vipassana practice, when a hindrance comes, you really have two options. One is to turn and relate to it directly with mindfulness, Uh with an allowing attitude. The other is to leave it in the background and let the mindfulness stay in touch with the present moment through another focus—breath or body or something like that.
4: Or, or, or the, or the big—I mean, that would be like, or you could turn back and look at awareness in the same way.
2: Exactly. Okay. So I'd say that choice is there in both practices. And in the awareness practice specifically, if the hindrance gets stronger, it you won't really let you connect so well with awareness. And then it's most skillful to turn and relate directly with the hindrance. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And then Nikki, one on the back against the wall. Uh, to your right. Yeah.
4: Uh, thanks. This is a real quickie. Um, for the dedicated practitioner program, do, do your 50 hours or so of you know history of retreat have to be in Vipassana? 50 days. 50 days, I'm sorry.
1: 50 <laughs> yeah, days. and what we're looking for is people who are practicing in this tradition. So it's 50 days of Vipassana or Metta. Or, or, you know, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, because I, I have that, that much retreat practice, but it's m- mostly in Tibetan. So we look for people who are connected to this tradition. And again, there's, there's, when, wherever it applies, it kind of depends how many people apply, how many people we let in, where the bar gets set, but it's meant to be 50 days of vipassana or metta practice. It's assuming Thanks. Certain background. It's assuming, yeah, it's, it's meant to be for people who are senior students in this tradition. Is that what you mean?
2: And then Nikki, there was a Betsy had a question, and then Nan up front.
3: Yeah, um, it's actually just a, something about community building. It's not a, really a question, but I thought maybe I would just let um, women in the Bay Area know that there is a women's sangha that is forming in the East Bay um, for, who want, for women who want to have more community together and sit together. And I put a little email list out on the table. If you want to know about it, I can email you. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. And sure. thank you to all the teachers. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you, Betsy. And Nan, who's just up front. Yeah.
5: Guy, you talked in the um, uh, the awareness meditation about uh, the. You touched on the state of bardo, mm. and I was wondering if you could explain that just a little bit in terms of. Uh, I, I'm going to say this in a very lay person's terms, so um, that the that there was a, a mother
2: state, and chi- mother and child, the mother
5: and child, but in in terms of mm. the luminosity there, that there was a period of uncertainty where perhaps, for want of a better word, the small mind goes back to join the large mind of the universe. Um, But there's a period of uh, uncertainty in which perhaps luminosity is not recognized or is not accepting and the spirit returns. To the earth.
2: So, the question about... I just made a short comment in answer to a question. I think the question was about, is this thing that we call you know, kind of the mind that doesn't come and go, which is one of the tenets of the Yogacara system, is, is that existing outside human individuals in the cosmos in some way? Or is it only an aspect of embodied existence? And I said that some Tibetan schools view it as existing kind of cosmically. And um, it's brought out in the teaching related to the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the bardos. And they're considered a number of different bardos. But there's a bardo of death where the dying happens. Then immediately after that, It's said in this Tibetan tradition, this is not found in the Pali Canon or the Theravada, but in this Tibetan tradition, it's said that the luminosity or the clarity aspect of Buddha nature perceives a luminosity that is not from its own individual embodied essence but that is outside of it. And that is a bigger luminosity that is considered the mother luminosity. And the individual luminosity of the person who has just died recognizes that. So the Tibetans say, if at that moment of perception there is a recognition of what that luminosity is about and a willingness to meet it fully, then the child luminosity rejoins with the mother luminosity and there is an end to rebirth. If the recognition doesn't take place or it doesn't uh, let go into it completely, then the child luminosity remains separate and that's what leads on to the next birth. Through And then the next phase of the bardo is in the Tibetan Book of the Dead described as 49 days of wandering before the consciousness finds a body, a womb, a birth, again. That's, that's pretty much the extent of my understanding. Not my tradition. That's pretty much the extent of my understanding. Okay,
5: so would you imagine that would be kind of like nirvana? or
2: I yes. mean, it would yes. be the final piece. Yes, yeah. That would be considered liberation. Tibetan teachers, have a couple of Tibetan teachers, have told me that um, nowadays... Most yogis in their tradition are liberated in that moment after death, as opposed to during their normal waking lives. Just a, re- a news report from the other from the other side.
5: Okay, thank you.
2: Yeah. Uh, let's take Amy, and then Mary Ellen.
3: Uh, Guy, last night, um, you said, not last night, yesterday morning, I think you ended your talk on karma by saying that there's a point at which you stop trying to cultivate the beautiful qualities, and then there's stillness, and then the Big Bang is what it is. <laughs> And I keep, I'm always thinking, we're heading towards that, and it's such a secret like what really happens as we go towards it, so I've been thinking about that, and I'm wondering if you could say a little more. If, I am imagining that those beautiful qualities are by then so inherent that you don't, you're not working at it. They are just right. So, but is there anything else you want to say? <laughs>
2: I could talk about this quite a while and I'm a little bit speculative because obviously I haven't, you know, I haven't been to the end of the path myself. Uh, When the Buddha talks about the end of karma in the suttas, he doesn't spell it out in a lot of detail. And it's always been a a little bit enigmatic in my reading of it. So a little bit I'm interpreting and, and making up how I understand it to be. But there is this interesting pointer that Gil alluded to um, this morning when, in one of the suttas where he described the night of his awakening, he talked about three major insights. The first major insight, and he said his mind had gotten very concentrated and he developed um, sort of supernormal powers, and he was able to look and see his past lives. And he said he recollected one, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand past lives where he was born and died, belonged to such and such a clan, named such and such. And then that passed. And then his second insight um, was what was called the divine eye. And he turned and he saw beings throughout the world or throughout the cosmos um, being born, dying, and being reborn, and being reborn according to their karma. And those who had had Um, a lot of negative actions were reborn in states of a lot of suffering and those who had been, uh, living with a lot of good actions were born in states of happiness and ease. But the Buddha said, well, neither of those is liberation because both of those outcomes keep us going on the wheel. So where is the way if you want to be done with suffering altogether? So I think that's kind of that the dark karma with dark results were the beings who had done unskillful actions born in unhappy realms. Bright actions with bright results were the beings who were born in happy states. But he was looking for what does it mean not to be reborn at all? And I think that you know, the kind of way I read it is one stops acting, from, at least from any self-centered volition. So that's where, to me, the, the implication of non-doing becomes very clear and very strong. So in, these things usually happen when one has um, developed quite a lot of stability of mind. For most people, it's in a retreat or close to a retreat setting. And as you say, having cultivated the strong qualities for a while, one can sort of let go of them at a certain depth, and just trust in non-doing and, tr- and peace, and trust the Dharma to take one where it's going to go. So there's a sense that one has abandoned all trying at that point, and then some movement comes from another direction that opens one to the unconditioned. That's the kind of overview for me, of, of how it unfolds. And then in terms of the specifics, the best model, I think, in the developmental process are the seven factors of awakening. When those factors are cultivated, made strong and mature, you know, the Buddha said they lead to release. The mind inclines to nirvana. So I think you could look at it as non-doing. You could look at it as the cultivation of the seven factors and the quality of equanimity becoming so strong that one doesn't need to do anymore. And then one rests in the stillness, and something may happen. Thanks. Let's take just one more question, Mary Ellen, and then I think uh, Nikki right at the back. And then I think we'll need to move on.
4: First of all, thank you for all the work that you put into this.
1: I know all the talks take a lot of effort. one thing we touched on, and both in the talks and in the exercises, was, you know, being absorbed in something, and that the self falls away because we're absorbed in something. But what never did come up were the jhana states. And I realize that could probably be a whole topic on its own in terms of emptiness. But I was, t- you know, as you enter those states, the fetters fall away. And I was just wondering if you could touch on that briefly emptiness and that sort of state of absorption?
2: Sure. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, it's an important question. And um, the Buddha talked a lot about concentration in relationship to these states called the jhanas, of which there are four um, form jhanas. And then beyond those, there are four immaterial attainments that are not connected to, um, to bodily experiences. And the basic understanding in the path is that if one can develop concentration to that level, that provides a really excellent foundation for insight, not only into the three characteristics, but then into the unconditioned. So they're considered really central in the overall path of Theravadin practice. The understanding is that when the mind is in any of the jhanas, the envelopment or or degree of stillness or uh, wrapped upness is so complete that the wisdom faculty isn't quite active. So the general understanding is that deep insight doesn't happen within a jhana. Because there's just so much stillness, there's a certain kind of penetrating alertness and interest that isn't functioning at that time. If it were to function, it would disturb the absorption a little bit. So the, the way that it's generally understood or approached is that one develops the jhanas in order to bring about great steadiness of attention and stillness of mind, and then exits the jhana in order to develop the insight. So the jhanas are sort of a platform that one uses to build steadiness, and then one departs from them, at least temporarily, in order to investigate. So this investigative factor is what starts to wake up the wisdom piece, and the combination of the stillness and the alertness of wisdom is kind of the ideal combination for insight to take place. So jhanas are an important part of the tradition. We tend to teach them for people who have an interest in the longer retreats, we, we generally think that it takes about a month to find out if one has the capacity currently for jhana. So we teach them during uh, February, I think that some teams teach them during March, and we teach them on the three-month course. <coughs> then if you want to get a little bit of a run-up to it, um, there's a concentration retreat every year. Sally has been teaching it for six or seven years now where they'll talk about the factors that lead into the establishing of the jhana. So, we teach a systematic development of concentration factors that get one close to jhana. And then on the longer retreats, we teach jhana, for those who are interested. Okay, I think this is probably a good point at which to wrap up. I don't know if either of my colleagues want to comment on any of the answers.
1: Yeah, no, Nikki.
2: Right? can't hear you. Nikki.
0: Nikki's turn. Yeah.
2: So I think we'll wrap up um, there with the questions. And I think Nikki, who has a microphone, wanted to say something to you all. Nikki, come sit up here. Please.
6: I guess what needs to be said... Um, is thank you, a deep bow to all of you, um, and to many, many of you who let me sit in on your interviews. Um, thank you so much for your generosity, for sharing yourself. And um, and it's been a privilege, really, to, to witness um, your practice from the other side and to... Um, to feel the purity and the intensity of, of all of your intentions, through the struggles, through all the colds you've had and the rain and all of that. So, so hearing all of that over and over, I get a deep bow and and, and deep gratitude for for uh, uh, letting me be a part of it. And um, also, my deep gratitude goes to my teachers. Um, thank you so much for teaching me, taking me under your wing. And uh, teaching me with a lot of generosity this past week, really appreciate it, Deepa. Um, and best wishes to all of you for your practice. And it's it's been beautiful to to witness um, your your intention. So, best wishes of metta.
2: So I also wanted to say a personal goodbye and then I want to say something about Spirit Rock um, before we come to the closing of the retreat. Um, Personally, I also really enjoyed this retreat and I really enjoyed um, this group. As one of the managers commented when you all came in, this is one of the most experienced groups that we've had the pleasure to work with here at Spirit Rock. And I felt that was reflected in your maturity of not complaining about the rain. To start with, I was just waiting for somebody to flip out because it was so wet, and no, everybody just worked so well with that. I looked on the web yesterday. In, in a place in Marin that's similar to this, there were ten and a half inches of rain in the first five days of our retreat. So that's like a quarter of our annual total. So we got off to a start here. But you all rolled with it really well, and I appreciated the quality of the questions, the dialogues, the interviews. Everybody I spoke with was working really sincerely, taking the teachings to heart, and appreciated all the investigation of this rather difficult material that we put out. So it was really a pleasure from from our side to be with you. We don't often get a chance to talk so, so in such an extended way, about material like this. So it's a treat for us. I also want to thank my colleagues. I had a really wonderful time teaching with you. I seldom get to teach with Gil, so that's really a privilege for me. And also Nikki just came and slotted in with the team so well. It was such a pleasure to have you this week. And she's going to be a fantastic teacher in her own right as the training goes on. So look forward to that. So, I just wanted to close by talking a little about um, Spirit Rock. We're in the middle of a kind of transition right now, which you may notice if you look around the whole of the campus. I'll explain a little about that. But to say one of the things that we're trying to do here is to develop a culture that's a little different from the mainstream Western culture that we live in. We want to have a culture here at Spirit Rock that's built on Metta and Dana. These are kind of the founding principles that we want to have interactions based on. And I hope you felt that coming in, that you were welcomed by the staff. The cooks certainly showered their love on you. The managers, I hope, took good care of your needs. We tried to meet the group with friendliness. And then this principle of Donna is so central to transforming a culture, the generosity that reaches out and helps others when I went to, um, to Burma to practice a few years ago, I went and um, wanted to ordain as a monk for a short time. Someone gave me a few hundred dollars to offer to the monastery, and when I arrived, I said, one of my students wants to make a donation. We'd like to sponsor a lunch. There are 750 people in the monastery, and there was enough money to sponsor a lunch. And they said, well, I'm very sorry, but all the lunches have already been taken for the next three months. <laughs> This is in the poorest country, one of the poorest countries in the world. But people so love giving that whole clans or families or vill- villages would get together to make, find enough money to be able to offer a meal to all the monks and nuns. And then they would come and sit by the meal table and watch the procession. There were like 400 monks and 150 nuns who would go through collecting their meal. And they would have such... Beautiful, radiant, smiling faces, the villagers, as they were watching the meal being offered from, from their gift. So this is the kind of culture we want to make here, and as a beginning, this whole retreat facility was a gift. The funds for this hall, for the residences, for the dining hall, were all donated. About $7 million over a number of years. So we're now embarked on a more ambitious project because we feel the limitation of our current facilities. There's so much more we want to do in terms of Dharma. As you can tell, it's growing and reaching out into the society and so many areas. We don't have the facilities right now to be able to support all the interest that there is in Buddhism, in meditation, in secular mindfulness. How many of you have been in the lower community hall where the bookstore... Okay. How does it compare to this building? A <laughs> little different quality, isn't it? So it's served us for 20 years. Eight-foot ceilings, and it's kind of falling apart, and single-pane windows, etc. It's served us for 20 years, but we really need to provide a, a more nuanced facility, facility with more class spaces, and we hope a more inspiring facility for people to meet the Dharma with. In addition, you may have noticed staff are working in trailers, staff are living in trailers, and that's been going on for about 20 years also. So we said, it's time to grow up. It's time for us to become adults. And our plan is to replace the community meditation hall with a building the architects say will be more beautiful than this one. I don't know, I'll see. But it's, uh, the plan is also an octagon, like this is, with um, octagonal roof instead of square roof, but it'll look very similar. We want to have two more classrooms so that we can address programs for senior students where there's a smaller turnout or for people of color or for many different subgroups of our Sangha. And um, then we also want to put the staff into sustainable, beautiful homes and offices. So we're at work right now on... Uh, capital campaign, a $15.6 million goal. And we're at $11 million raised. So there's already been a huge amount of generosity and a great response to the vision. And we still have $4.5 million to go. So uh, we are working on a couple of different fronts. One is we are asking wealthy potential donors to consider gifts. If any of you were in that category, we would welcome your participation. But we also have this very broad-based campaign called Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, which comes out of Sylvia Borstein's socialist inclinations. <laughs> she believes that we can all build it on an equal basis together. And so we're asking for donations of thousand dollars each from hopefully two thousand people and that would be a contribution of $2 million that would give us a long, put us a long way toward realizing that goal. So $1,000, and it can be paid over three years, works out to about $0.87 cents a day. And we feel that's kind of a number that's workable for most members of our sangha, much less than a latte on a daily basis. If you're able, motivated, and interested to help support in this way... We would really uh, love to talk with you. So, I will be down in the dining hall after the retreat ends, along with one or two members of our staff. I'd be happy to show you plans, answer questions, let you know in more detail what's up with our wishes and dreams for the buildings. And any kind of support you feel inclined to offer or tell your friends about, we would really gratefully receive. So, hope you'll consider Spirit Rock. It's coming to end of year giving time. And um, realize that you can make a real difference in the Dharma's ability to touch people in the world. Something like 20,000 people a year come through these doors. So, we have an opportunity to move them with our presentation of these incredible teachings, these rare teachings. So, if you'd like to join us, we'd be really grateful. one of the staff members pledged to bring cookies into the dining hall so if you'd just like to stop by and talk about cookies you can do that too but it's mostly to talk about Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas in the Capital Campaign okay that's it from all of us it's been a terrific retreat and thank you for your participation we hope to meet again with all of you and so we'll move into a closing uh, closing
0: ceremony. So um, <clears throat> we're going to plunge back into silence one last time, and uh, into the silent practice. <clears throat> it's easy to lose lose oneself in the talking and thinking about going home and lose touch. And um, the, the introduction to the practice we're about to do is um, a story that I heard about Thomas Merton. He was a very well-known Catholic monk and lived in this country. He wrote a lot of books. He was very interested in Buddhism, kind of a mystic or deep contemplative Catholic monks. And someone asked him, after all your years of monastic life, what have you learned? And he said, I learned how to open and close doors. So what we're gonna do is in silence, uh, mindfully take all the mats that are around the hall and stack them in neat piles over in the corner and neatly and the same with all the Zafus and any of your personal gear that you have, if you could either just move it to the outer hall or to the back and then once it's all cleared here, then we'll stand in one big circle.